Welcome to Gracious Words. Gracious Words is taken from the weekly women's Bible study taught by Cheryl Broderson at Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, California. We behold your glory, God, in the face of Christ. It shows us who you are, revealing who you are. Misunderstandings are an unfortunate certainty of life. Today we'll see how an unresolved misunderstanding almost caused a civil war between the tribes of Israel, all because of their assumptions and accusations. Part two of Cheryl's message titled, The Great Misunderstanding. And Zebulon, and Dan, and Judah. So in order to safeguard themselves against future division, they built a replica of God's altar at Shiloh. They built a replica of the altar on which the sacrifices for Israel are made every day. And then, of course, for the whole nation once a year on Yom Kippur. Perhaps they are remembering when they crossed over the Jordan with the other tribes of Israel and how Joshua had 12 of the leaders collect stones out of the midst of the Jordan and set them up at the camp of Gilgal so that all the children would remember what God had done. Perhaps they wanted a monument to remember what God had done. We know that they wanted it so that the Western tribe of Israel Western tribes of Israel would remember that the Eastern tribe, those on the east side of Jordan, were also their brethren, were also loved, were also part and partakers in the blessing of God. Now the children of Israel, those on the Western side, according to verse 11, heard someone say, isn't that how it always starts? Well, I heard someone say, I had this uh, friend of mine when I lived in Vista and was part of the women's ministry. She'd always come to me. She said, now someone said, there was never a name. It was always someone said. And I'm like, who is someone? Who is this person that's always saying something? You know, something that we have to do. And I said, unless they come to me, they must not really mean it. I want to see their face. I want them to say to me face to face. Then I'll know. But it was always someone said. And always that someone, whoever that someone was, was creating a lot of problems and always complaining. But it begins with this outward observation that someone assumes or presumes with what they see. Then people weigh in on what it means. I saw that they erected an altar on the western shore of Jordan. And somebody says, what? They built an altar, they're turning to idolatry. And somebody else says, oh no, they're trying to say that they own the Western side and the Eastern side. And it leads to a judgment call. And we read in this passage 
that everyone took up arms at Shiloh. In other words, the other nine and a half tribes, they all gather together at Shiloh and they've come together with their swords and with their clubs and, you know, with whatever instruments of war that they've had, they come, they are just, because of what they heard, because of what someone said, they are armed and ready for war. This is what was said, and this is what it evolved into. Behold, the children of Reuben, the children of Gad, and half the tribe of Manasseh have built an altar on the frontier of the land of Canaan in the region of the Jordan on the side occupied by the children of Israel. I, I just want to comment on this. Someone said just just one more time. When I was a little girl, I used to sneak in at night into my mom and dad's bedroom. And I loved to sleep with them. I'd get scared. I had a room on the front of the house. I'd hear voices and people talking. And so I would run down the hallway into their room. Well, my mom, she would sometimes wake up in the middle of the night and sometimes see apparitions and stuff. And so this one night she woke up and she had this styrofoam head that held a wiglet. I don't know how many of you remember wiglets, but those were like those hair pieces that women used to put on the back of their head so they looked like they had more hair and it was all curled so they could just stick their hair in a ponytail and put this wiglet on and look, you know, coiffured. And so mom had this wiglet on top of this white styrofoam head. Because it was the middle of the night, she's just waking up. She thought that the wiglet instead of me, was moving towards her, that this white styrofoam head was coming right at her. And my mom began to scream. And my mom could scream. Man, that woman has vocal cords. And my dad was sound asleep, and he just rolled over and covered her mouth. So now her mouth is covered. So she's really like, and she can't think because she just is awakened, you know, to hit my dad or to stop him. So she's screaming. I'm trying to sneak into their bed. I just fall on the floor and start crying really loudly because I'm scared to death. The next thing I know, my brothers come rushing in. One's got a baseball bat. One's got like a hockey stick. And then my sister comes running down the hall with a lamp. You know, and somebody has the good sense to finally turn on the light. And you realize, no, the wiglet is not flying around the room. And my dad sleeps through all of it. He's still asleep. You know, I'm crying. The boys are yelling. My sister's like, we'll get you, you terrible person. And my mom's screaming and my dad's sleeping. And my mom just finally, she takes, she's like, Chuck, wake up, wake up. We just had an emergency and you slept through all of it. We just all laughed. But again, you know, that's, someone said, you know, it started out with me going into my parents' room at night because I was afraid and turned into this whole fiasco. But think about all the things that start with just this small little thing and turn into this big fiasco. And that's what happened. Reuben and Gad and half the tribe of Manasseh were just concerned that their brethren might try to exclude them. And the next thing you know, the other tribes are taking up arms against them. Now, like the infamous game of operator where the message gets all jumbled up as it moves from person's ear to another, as the word spread throughout the tribes of Israel, the misunderstanding grew. Nine and a half tribes on the western side armed for war against their brethren. It's interesting to me to note that they were ready to go against their brethren, even though they failed to drive out the Canaanites. Instead of driving out the Canaanites in their own territory, they're ready to go attack their brethren on the other side of Jordan 
those who made allowances for the Jebusites to stay in Jerusalem are ready to go and attack their brethren. Those who were intimidated by the chariots in the valley are ready to go and attack their brethren. In other words, those who wouldn't fight the real enemies are ready to go and destroy their own brethren. Those who wouldn't possess their whole territory are willing to drive the eastern tribes out of their territory. This often happens when we forget, again, who the real enemy is and his tactics. Now, at this point, Phineas, who is the son of Eliezer, who is the son of Aaron, he has a suggestion. If you remember Phineas from Numbers 25, he is the priest that is zealous for the Lord against the scourge of the Moabite idolatry. In Numbers 25, the story is given about the Moabite women that came into the camp of Israel right as Israel is about to go over into the Jordan. These Moabite women come into the camp of Israel and they begin to seduce the young men into fornication. And while the men are committing fornication with these young women, these young women bring out their idols and we're told that they led 24,000 Israelite men into sin because of idolatry. And these 24,000 men perished. At the same time, Phineas, he's zealous for the Lord and for the promises of God. And he runs after one of the leaders of Israel who is blatantly defying the law of the Lord. And he runs in after this leader and his mistress. And it's a little gory. He spears them through while they're in the tent. Because this leader, again, was violently and publicly violating the command of the Lord. Now, God commended Phineas and said to Moses, therefore say, behold, I give to Phineas my covenant of peace, and it shall be to him and his descendants after him a covenant of an everlasting priesthood because he was zealous for his God and made atonement for the children of Israel. Isn't it interesting through this violent act, he showed zeal for the Lord and God gave him a covenant of peace. So now, as we're looking at this situation, this misunderstanding, Phineas is the right man for the job. He will do what is right before God. He will not hold back, even if it means violence. But yet, he's part of a covenant of peace with God. He is head of the tabernacle at Shiloh. He is the spiritual representative of Israel. He is zealous for the people of God. He is zealous for the promises of God. He is zealous for God. And the covenant of peace with God he's, is with him. So he chooses 10 rulers out of the nine and a half tribes in Israel. And they are going with him to meet with the eastern Israeli tribes. I love that Phineas does not go with the army of Israel. He says, no, you guys stay here, you know, kind of let your weapons just rest for a moment. Let me just go with 10 people. Let me just go with the judges, the ruler of the different tribes, and, and let me just hear them out. So they meet with the eastern tribes, and strong accusations are waged. We read these strong accusations in verses 16 through 20. Treachery, which is betrayal and trespass. They're accused of treachery. 
that they've committed this treachery against God. They're accused of turning away from following the Lord. They're accused of building an altar for the purpose of rebellion against the Lord. They're told that they've forgotten their history. They've forgotten Numbers 25, which we were talking about earlier, the seduction by the Moabite women where there were 24,000 casualties at Peor. They've forgotten about Achan, the son of Zerah, who took what was forbidden in the battle at Jericho, Joshua 7. And because of Achan, 35 men of Israel were killed. In other words, they're saying to these men, your sin is not just going to affect you, but it's going to affect the whole nation of Israel. And we're mad at you because your sin is ultimately gonna hurt us. So they offer a solution or a remedy. You know, often we get in our minds what repentance should look like. You know, it's not just that we want that person to say they're sorry. We have a way that they want. We want them to say they're sorry. You ever do that to your husband? He says, I'm sorry. And you're like, no, you don't mean it. And he's like, sorry. Nope, nope, that didn't do it either. What do you want from me? I want flowers. I want three boxes of chocolate and a gift certificate to South Coast Plaza, and then I'll think about what repentance looks like for you. You know, but we always kind of have these stipulations of what repentance should look like. So these men, these Westerners, had in their mind a way for these tribes to repent and be reinstated. It is merciful, but it's unnecessary. They say to them, if it's this land, if you're separated from us, if that's what the problem is, if it's the Jordan River, then move, move to the Western side, take an inheritance with all of us. And then they say, but whatever you do, do not build your own altar or tabernacle to the Lord. We serve one God. There's only one prescribed place of sacrifice and one way to worship. Now, the Eastern tribe responds to this accusation. It's almost as if they are amazed by what they hear. Have you ever had somebody misread you? And they say, you know, I saw that look that you did. And you're like, what look? Oh, and you know, that look. And I'm like, what look did I do? I don't know what my face does when I'm not looking. They'll accuse you of something you never meant. I remember years ago, I'm at a retreat. And I didn't even know I did this. But I guess the pastor's wife had put her hand on mine. And I pulled my hand out. Well, I probably pulled my hand out because I like to do this a lot. And anyway, when I pulled my hand out, at that moment, she was sure I hated her, that I felt that her touch was disgusting. I mean, she had like, by the time she took me aside, she was like sobbing. She was almost convulsive, like, I put my hand on yours. You hate me. Why do you hate me? And I'm like, I don't hate you. Why do you think I hate you? Because I put my hand on yours and you pulled it out. And it was really dramatic the way... I pulled it out. I didn't realize it, like, you know, lighting a match or something. I just pulled it out. And I said, I am so sorry. I am so not aware of what I do. I mean, that's dangerous, I know, but I'm really not aware of half the things I do. And I am so sorry because never, ever have I had that thought. It's never even been in the back of my mind, the front of my mind, the top of my mind, the bottom of my mind, in my mind at all. I love you. And I am so sorry. But you don't. That can happen so easily. And have you ever been amazed by when somebody comes to you and says, you did this? And you're like, I did? I didn't know I did that. No, I didn't mean anything. And I believe at this point that these Eastern tribes are totally amazed 
at how their memorial could create such ire and indignation and misunderstanding. They immediately appeal to God. I love that. They say, no, look, I'm standing before God. Let God judge. He knows our hearts. He knows our mind. He knows our intentions. Verse 22. And I love this because in Hebrews 4.13, we're told that all things are naked and seen before the God that we stand. God sees the heart and the motivations. And I believe if either side had sought the Lord, you never would have had the circumstance. You know, I have had it where I am praying for somebody and God literally shows me their heart. I might be coming at it like, Lord, how dare they do this? And why did you do this? And the Lord will say, Cheryl, I want you to see what I see. I want you to see their heart. I want you to see their intention. And when God does that, everything changes. Now in verse 23, they say this, if it is rebellion or treachery against the Lord, then kill us. Or as a friend of mine says, kill me now, kill me now. If this is our intention, if that is anything that we intended, then we do deserve to die. If they had any intention of making burnt offerings on at the Jordan River instead of at the tabernacle, then God should require an account. I think it's important to pause and note that neither side, again, inquired of the Lord. Both were seeking to act on God's behalf. They were both seeking to do a godly thing. But you know, if you're going to do a godly thing, it's probably a really good idea to ask God what he wants. Don't you think? I mean, I don't know about you, but I've had birthday presents that I really don't want. And you're like, you could have asked me what I wanted and I would have told you. And then I could have gotten what I wanted. But we need to ask God, what do you want? What do you want in this situation? Both had godly intentions, but neither side prayed or sought direction from the Lord. Reuben, Gad, and half Manasseh's motivation, we're told in verse 24, it was fear. It's the what if syndrome. Note, again, like operator, it must have started with a suggestion as they were about to cross the Jordan. Someone said, again, someone probably said, what if their descendants try to exclude our sons from the inheritance of the Lord? And someone else said, well, what if they claim that the Jordan is God's barrier between our two tribes. And somebody else said, what if they try to forbid our children from going to the tabernacle? And then someone else added, what if their descendants turn our descendants away from trusting in and serving the Lord? You see, both sides had gone to dangerous conjectures. It wasn't just the nine and a half tribes on the Western side or the two and a half tribes on the Eastern side. Both were equally guilty. And it started with fear and distrust and mistrust. And again, because they forgot who the enemy was and they began to fight against each other. Both sides have gone to these dangerous conjectures. Eastern tribes came up with a remedy for their fear. Verse 28, we'll build an altar as a memorial, a witness to both sides that we serve the same God. Now in verse 29, The Eastern tribes say, far be it from us that we should rebel against the Lord and turn from following the Lord this day to build an altar for burnt offerings, for grain offerings, or for the sacrifices besides the altar of the Lord our God, which is before his tabernacle. The reasoning of these tribes is just the opposite of what the Eastern tribes perceived, assumed, and presumed. Phineas listened. He was willing to have his heart changed. He was willing to give 
the eastern tribes the benefit of the doubt. He is truly a peacemaker. Matthew 5, 9, blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called the sons of God. James 3, 18, now the fruit of righteousness, true righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. And in James 2, 13, for judgment is without mercy to the one who shows no mercy because mercy triumphs over judgment. Phineas is pleased with their answer. He recognizes their innocence. He understands their motivation. He sees their heart. He recognizes that the Lord is among them. There is no treachery. Their motivation was actually to be partakers with the Lord. There is no bloodshed, no wrath. Phineas and the representatives take the good report back to Shiloh and everyone is pleased. They all bless God and they no longer speak about going to war against their brethren. And they recognize the altar as a witness between the Eastern tribes and Western tribes that the Lord, the Lord alone is God. Like these Western tribes, we can be too quick to believe the worst about other Christians, to misinterpret their actions, to gather together against other people, other churches, other fellowships, and to take up arms. Let this story in Judges 22 serve as a cautionary tale that we need to remember always who the real enemy is. It's the world, it's the flesh, it's the devil. It's those powers that war against our soul, those powers that war against the kingdom of God. We need to believe the best about one another, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, and leave the rest to God. And we need to seek the Lord to pray for one another, especially before taking up a cause against another believer. Most importantly, we need to value other believers. We need to remember what other believers have done for God, their commitment to the work of God, their relationship to God. The need of the hour in which we live, as we see so much division around us, the need of the hour right now is agape. It is love. We need to love. We need that 1 Corinthians 13 love. How do we get this love? We have to pray for this love, that we might truly love our neighbors as ourselves. We, we need to pray that we might treat others as we want to be treated, according to Matthew 712, where Jesus said, do unto others as you want others to do to you. Jesus told us that love is the true fulfillment of all the law and all the prophets. This is how we truly are righteous. It's when we love. We are never more like Jesus than when we are loving. That is when we are most in the image of our God and Savior is when we love one another fervently. Love will cover a multitude of sin. Love will seek reconciliation before war and dismissal. Love will desire peace and blessing. It is love that will be the witness to the world that Jesus loves us, that Jesus is for us. In closing, I just want to say this. We tend to pick up the affections of those that were most around. Have you ever noticed that? Like you might not really value something until you're with somebody who really values something. My daughter, Kristen, 
loves vintage. She loves vintage. Now, I have to say, vintage was going out when I was coming into the world. I do not like succulents, and I do not like vintage. I see it as garage sale, you know, stuff. And my daughter, Kristen, loves vintage, loves succulents. And suddenly, the more I'm with Kristen, the more I begin to value succulents and vintage. I'm like, oh, look at that vintage angel. Look at that vintage table. Look at that. And I really don't like vintage, but because I'm with her and she loves vintage, vintage and succulents all of a sudden have value to me. That which had no value, no place in my heart or my life suddenly become valuable and precious. Why? Because I love my daughter. Because the more I'm with my daughter, Kristen, the more I pick up her values. So let me just say this, the more time we spend with Jesus, the more we will love what he loves. And he loves his people. He loves his sons and he loves his daughters. And this will become the true altar of witness between us and others that we truly worship the same God, the same Savior, Jesus Christ. That's the need of the hour. Even though the events of Joshua 22 happened thousands of years ago, they are still good lessons for us today. We are not to be quick to judge a situation. Oftentimes we are too fast to believe the worst and we come to wrong conclusions. We always need to remember who the real enemy is. It's the world, it's the flesh, it's the devil and his powers that war against us in God's kingdom. We defeat the enemy as we seek the Lord for guidance and understanding. Through this, God takes what Satan means for evil and uses it for good. We hope you have been blessed by today's Bible study. For more information about the Gracious Words radio program and the teaching ministry of Cheryl Broderson, please visit our website at graciouswords.com. Coming up next time on the Gracious Words program, we'll look at the treasury of faith as we continue our Possessing the Promises series in the book of Joshua with Cheryl Broderson. We do hope you make plans to join us. Again, for more information, please visit our website at graciouswords.com. This program is sponsored by Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, California.